In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Five people possessed by the devil. People kill for a variety of reasons. Some feel they've been slighted, others in self-defense, and some claim that it was simply something they needed to do. The people on this list are in a different category and claim that they murdered because they were told to do so by demons or the devil. Here are five people possessed by the devil. Number five, Jason Dalton. Married with two children, Jason Dalton was 45 years old when he decided to become an Uber driver in Kalamazoo County, Michigan. On February 20th, 2016, shortly before 4 p.m., he picked up his first Uber fare ever, and it was a female college student who refused to take the ride. After 4 p.m., he picked up Matt Mellon. The two made small talk, but Mellon noted Jason received a phone call via Bluetooth and soon after he began flooring it. Dalton drove erratically towards oncoming traffic, blew through a stop sign, and sideswiped a car. Matt was frantic and begged Dalton to let him out, but he refused. When Dalton briefly stopped, Matt had an opportunity to jump out. A witness reported the incident, and Matt also informed cops. After this, Dalton returned home, picked up his gun, and began to take fares again. He tried to pick up someone, but couldn't find this passenger. He circled around, and that's when he spotted Tiana Carruthers. He stopped and asked her if she was the passenger, but she told him no. He then drove off before turning around, pulled the gun out, and began shooting. Tiana was shot four times and simply pretended to be dead, hoping Dalton would drive away, and luckily, he did. 
Jason then went to his parents' house, hitting another car along the way. He hid his vehicle in the garage, asked his wife to meet him there, and used her car instead. He went to their home to leave the gun he used to shoot Tiana and replaced it with another one. Then, he started taking more fares. The passengers he picked up this time did not report any strange incidents at all. They said Dalton didn't behave strangely or gave any indication he had shot and left someone for dead earlier. But close to 10 p.m., things changed. He drove by a car dealership to look at a black BMW, and when he got out of his car, he walked up to two people there, father and son Rich and Tyler Smith, and began shooting them. Tyler's girlfriend, Alyssa, was in the Range Rover close by. She saw everything and dialed 911 to report what had happened. Dalton drove off and came upon a group of older women at a parking lot of a Cracker Barrel. Mary Lou Nye was inside her vehicle when Dalton approached her and shot her in the head. As the other women screamed, he began shooting them as well. All four were shot and initially reported as being dead, but 14-year-old Abigail, a niece of one of the women, survived the shooting. Dalton went back to his family's home and for some reason fired several shotgun shells inside his shed, which his neighbor heard. He then left and began taking Uber fares once again. He shuffled several passengers back and forth without further incident. Cops tagged his vehicle based on eyewitness accounts, and although they had no idea that the killer was an Uber driver, they believed the shooter would target nightclubs where people gathered. Officers eventually pulled him over, and during the pat-down they realized he had a gun. Surprisingly though, he never put up a fight, something the officers were expecting given the carnage he left behind. As for his reasons, this is where it gets strange. Even though he was asked multiple times, Dalton initially said he didn't have a reason. But after interrogation, he finally said that it was his Uber app that made him do it. He claimed that his Uber mobile app would pop up a symbol resembling the Order of the Eastern Star, a Freemason group. For a brief time, another app, which had the symbol of the devil, would flash on his Uber app, and he would press it when it appeared. Once he did this, he said that something overtook him and he would begin to kill. When the officers pulled him over that night, he waited for the app to pop up again, but it never did, so he didn't think it was necessary to kill the police officer who approached his car, and thus, he just surrendered peacefully. Currently, Dalton is undergoing a psychiatric evaluation to see if he is fit for trial. Number 4. Satan Worshipping Gang An upside-down cross marked the area where four teenagers were killed and sacrificed in a ritualistic killing in the city of Yaroslav, Russia. The victims ranged between 16 and 17 years old, and all were referred to as living a goth lifestyle. In a span of two days, the victims disappeared after telling their parents they were attending a music festival, but this was a lie since the festival was still a month away. During the police investigation, they discovered the victims had one thing in common. All four had contacted Nikolai Ogolobic prior to their disappearance. The victims were lured by the suspects on two separate occasions. The first set of victims was Olga and Anna, who were brought by the group on June 28, 2008 to a forest near Nikolai's home. They were given alcohol before they were attacked by the gang of eight Satanists, with Nikolai as the leader. After killing them, they chopped up their bodies, cooked some parts, and ate them. The following day on June 29th, they lured a girl named Vyra and her boyfriend Andre. They also gave them alcohol before eventually killing and chopping them up as well. 
Police discovered the grisly scene on August 12th when they found a pit with some of the victims' arms and legs inside of it. All the victims' heads, arms, and legs were removed. Others had their hearts, genitals, and scalps taken. During the crackdown, police arrested eight suspects, all members of the satanic cult. They confessed to the crime, admitting victims were used in a ritualistic sacrifice. They also revealed grisly details about the murders, saying each victim was stabbed exactly 666 times. One of the suspects, Alexander Voronovic, also said they once dug up a girl's grave and then ate her heart. All of them pled guilty and were charged with murder. Four of them were charged for desecrating the bodies of victims. One was found to be criminally insane and admitted to a psychiatric hospital, while another was released under his own cognizance and charged with criminal complicity. The suspects, who were teenagers themselves during the crime, were sentenced to varying degrees of jail time, the highest being just 20 years. Number 3. Carl Drew, The Fall River Cult In the middle of Fall River, Massachusetts, three young women were brutally tortured and murdered between October 1979 and February of 1980. The first victim was 17-year-old Doreen Levesque, and her body was found on October 13, 1979. She was a runaway who had turned to prostitution. When she was discovered, her wrists were bound with fishing line and she had been sexually tortured. There were stab wounds on her head and signs that a brutal beating had taken place. Police thought because of what she did for a living, a client had most likely killed her. But during the autopsy, the coroner ruled that multiple individuals were involved in her death. They also suggested ritualistic overtones and that she was stoned to death. A month after the discovery, Andy Maltias visited the police station and reported his 22-year-old girlfriend, Barbara Raposa, missing. Andy was mentally unstable and a pedophile, but he still reported her missing, fearing her life may be in danger. He said that he and Barbara were part of a satanic cult, and he may know people that had info about Doreen's murder as well. He pointed to friends and lesbian lovers, Robert Murphy and Karen Marsden. They were brought in and during their interview, Karen rambled and seemed nervous while Robin was quiet and observed police. Finally, from pressure or nervousness, Karen broke down in tears and told police that a man named Carl Drew killed Doreen. Carl was known to the local police as a notorious 26-year-old pimp. Karen said Carl was the devil and built his prostitution ring around a satanic coven. She also told cops that if she turned up dead, it was Drew who killed her. On January 26, 1980, the body of Barbara Raposa was found in an abandoned printing factory. Like Doreen, her wrists were bound with fishing line and she had been sexually assaulted. Her skull had been crushed with a rock, and the first suspect was of course her boyfriend Andy. At first he denied involvement but later claimed to have had a psychic dream about what happened. Police played along with him and Andy brought them to the crime scene where he described details only cops knew at the time. He was then arrested as the prime suspect, and days later, Robin Murphy called investigators with more information. She said she would testify against Andy because she was there when he killed Barbara. She also claimed she was present at Doreen's murder, too. She said Andy killed Barbara and threatened her with the same fate if she ever told anyone. Robin was then given immunity and placed under protective custody. On Doreen's murder, Murphy said she was killed as an offering of the soul to Satan, 
and she pointed the finger at Carl Drew as the main suspect for that. But Karen's testimony told a different story. She said Murphy played a more active role in the killings and in fact directed others to take part in the killing of Barbara so they would keep silent as accomplices. Unfortunately, Karen was an unreliable witness because of her drug use, nervous behavior, and inconsistent testimony, so police couldn't make any arrest or move forward. But Karen told police she was going to be the next victim, and sure enough, on February 9, 1980, she was reported missing. Two months later, someone stumbled across the top half of a human skull while in the woods, and it turned out to be Karen's. Investigators received a tip stating that Carl Drew and Robin Murphy were responsible and they were brought in. In the end, Carl Drew was sentenced to life in prison without parole, while Andy also received the same sentence for Barbara's death. Meanwhile, Robin was charged with second-degree murder and received a reduced sentence of life in prison with the possibility of parole. She was released briefly before being incarcerated again for a parole violation. Last year, she was denied parole after lacking credibility because she kept changing her story about what she witnessed during the crimes and how they happened. However, she'll be up for parole again in 2022. Number 2. John Jenkin Just 48 hours after being released from a mental institution, 24-year-old John Jenkin killed his mother, Alice McMeekin, and 20-year-old sister, Catherine, in their Milam, England home in 2013. Two days prior, John walked up to a van driver in a deranged state. He dropped down a bag, put his hands up in the air, and said, I am armed, but it's not with my hands. Then he said he was going to kill his ma'am. We both know it's going to happen. I will find somewhere quiet when it's done. He kept repeating the fact that he was going to kill his own mother, and afterwards, the driver called police to inform them of the incident. Two hours after this, John was spotted near a nature reserve covered in blood from cuts he had made on his wrist using shells. He was taken to jail, and within minutes, the prison psychiatrist knew he was suffering from a mental illness. He was then taken to a nearby mental institution for further assessment. During the 90-minute session, he told the psychiatric nurse that he had taken a cocktail of drugs that included LSD. Despite this, they concluded that he was not a threat to himself or others and released him to the care of his mother. The night before the killings, John went out with his friends for a drink and he was seen displaying bizarre behavior. At some point, he challenged a group to a fight, tried to kiss a woman he didn't know, and also ate chocolate off of the dirty floor. By 5.10 a.m., He was seen in the back streets by a neighbor waving a knife above his head and shouting that he was possessed by demons and he was the devil and needed to confess. Three hours later, a neighbor heard a ruckus inside the Jenkin home. Apparently, John had woken up in bed, marched downstairs carrying a hatchet he kept beside him and started hitting his mother over the head. When his sister came down to see what happened, she began screaming and tried to escape and that's when he also attacked and killed her. He also killed his pet dog and afterwards left the house and walked half a mile to an estuary where he was seen naked, crawling on the ground. He was taken in by police and examined, where he stated he killed his mother and sister in the heat of the moment. John was ordered to serve a minimum of 12 years in prison, but he would continue treatment at the Ashworth Hospital in Merseyside. If he recovered before the 12 years, he would be transferred to the prison. The judge made it clear that under no way would he be released until the parole board is satisfied that he will no longer be a threat to anyone. 
Let's just hope they don't make the same mistake as the psychiatric nurse did. Number 1. Arnie Johnson It started on July 3, 1980 in Brookfield, Connecticut, when 11-year-old David Glatzel woke up in the middle of the night screaming after seeing, as he stated, a man with black eyes, a thin face with animal features and jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns, and hoofs. The beast creature warned him to beware. Soon, David began experiencing more night terrors and started acting strangely. He would get unexplained scratches all over his body and became quiet and nervous. His sister Debbie asked her fiancé, Arnie Johnson, to move in with them to help David, but this didn't seem to work. David's condition only worsened, and he began having visions and terrors. They asked a priest to bless the home, but again, this only worsened the situation. Louder sounds in the attic and around the house were heard, and David began seeing visions of the demonic man even during the daytime. He also started speaking in multiple voices and would hiss at his family in a menacing way. With no signs of it waning, the Glatzels contacted self-proclaimed demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren. They concluded that David was possessed by 43 demons and decided to hold a series of exorcisms to free the boy. The Warrens, along with four priests, conducted three exorcism sessions, but during one of these, Arnie made an unfortunate move. He taunted one of the demons to enter him, saying they were too afraid. After the exorcism was completed, the Warrens called the police, asking them to keep an eye out on Arnie. By November of 1980, things seemed to be going okay. Arnie and Debbie moved into their own place, an apartment owned by Alan Bono. But Arnie had begun to change. Despite being noted as a good guy by friends and family, he started getting into trouble. Debbie also said he would go into trances, claim to see a beast man, and sometimes growl at nothing. On February 16, 1981, Arnie spent the day with Debbie, his sister Wanda, and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary. School was closed, and they hung out in the kennel where Debbie and Wanda worked. By lunchtime, the property owner, Alan Bono, invited them over for lunch. The men began drinking, and at some point, there was uneasiness between them. By the time they reached the kennel again, a fight had broken out. Debbie tried to get Wanda and Mary out of the room, but Alan grabbed Mary, refusing to let her go. This is when Arnie pulled out a knife and stabbed Alan through the stomach and in his heart. He then stabbed Alan several more times before leaving the scene. During the trial, Arnie's attorney thought it was worth entering a not guilty plea by virtue of demonic possession, but this was not accepted by the judge, stating there was no way to prove it. Eventually, they went with self-defense, but the jury still found Arnie guilty. He was sentenced for up to 20 years, but served only five. After he was released, he and Debbie married and are still living happily ever after today. So there were five people possessed by the devil. There are many things in this world we can explain and some things we simply can't. While it can be hard to believe that a demon could possess someone to do the unthinkable, perhaps it is possible. If you like this video, then please remember to subscribe and click the notification bell because we have new videos coming out every single week we know you'll want to check out. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you soon.